Hello, hello, and welcome to Asian Women for Health podcast, From Resilience to Radiance. I'm Audrey Peck, your host, here to amplify the voices and lived experiences of Asian women, and to help break the silence on important health issues impacting our communities. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Nayanika Chatterjee, an international student from India who is pursuing a master's in anthropology at Brandeis University. Her personal experience with Hodgkin's lymphoma from a very young age has inspired her to research and focus on cancer patients of South Asian descent, delving deeper into their health journeys and exploring ways in which culture and language intersect and influence their well being within the South Asian community. Outside of academia, I understand she's a caffeine enthusiast like me and finds joy in Japanese anime and graphic novels. So perhaps we'll learn a bit more about that in a moment. But welcome to the program, Nayanika, her first podcast. Thank you, Audrey. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited. Actually, I am curious. What draws you to anime? <laughs> it was so random. Um, I started watching anime just, it, it was just showing randomly on TV when I was still in middle school. Mm-hmm. And I watched it and it was really fun. Like the stories and plot lines were so interesting. Mm. But I stopped watching for a while while I was in high school and uh, undergrad. Then I got back into it during the pandemic because everyone was stuck at home and we have nothing better to do. And then slowly I realized a lot of themes started going along with what I was learning in class or I started finding themes. So it made anime more enjoyable for me because it was like, I can see an actual real like, like real life application, not real life, 2D application of what I'm reading about. <laughs> awesome. So let's look at what has brought you to where you are today. I understand you grew up in India. What part? Uh, I grew up in Delhi. In Delhi. And so do you speak fluent Hindi? Yeah. Uh, I, so my family is from two different parts of the country. So we speak uh, multiple languages in the house. English and Hindi are the two main ones, but my Mm. parents also speak uh, Punjabi and Bengali, which are other Indian languages. (laughs) And when did you arrive to the States? Uh, I moved here around fall 2016. So it's been a while. Let's talk about your diagnosis at the tender age of 14, Hodgkin's lymphoma. You know, I wasn't even aware that Hodgkin's lymphoma is statistically the most common cancer among teens. I didn't know much about cancer until I had it. Um, I think the fact that it is Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of the more curable cancers was very comforting for my parents, at least at that point. Um, in terms of what I want people to know about Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's like, it's scary, but it's also not that scary, if that makes sense. Um, I know like cancer or like a cancer diagnosis in general is associated with death or ideas of death, like all the time, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be there. I Because when I was receiving treatment, I was very young and I saw kids even younger to me receiving treatment there with me. Mm-hmm. And they were all maybe not as aware as I was of what's happening in my body because they were very young. They were still like 
taking the chemo and like taking in their treatment and just going day by day like such an amazing way and they would bring toys and like do artwork and stuff like that in the daycare which is like super cute to think about so it's like cancer is like it's scary but it's more than just what we think about it like a scary diagnosis that there's nothing else to do you're going to lose a family member it's very hopeful and it's very it, it gives you an opportunity to grow if that makes sense it was a growing like, experience for me and my family yeah that's that's really profound and I'd like to learn more um but before we go there what were your first symptoms um I didn't have as many symptoms particularly cancer usually has very mild symptoms in terms of um like they, they, they can be like very um, common to the point or like subtle to the point where you don't notice them. Mm-hmm. I was a 14 year old teenager. So I was living a very active life. Yes. Hodgkin lymphoma symptoms usually include like weight loss, lots of sweating, tiredness, headaches. And for a 14 year old who's going to school, going to dance classes, they're very common that could happen anytime, especially in like heat and India is very hot so when I was getting headaches I was losing weight I was sweating a lot we all just thought it was because I was doing things like going out of school going out with friends going to dance classes doing other things I was stressed with school school is always stressful Mm -hmm. so it was not something that we noticed in the beginning but I do remember there was this one time where um, I was out playing badminton with my dad and we kind of overdid it and it and I woke up the next morning with like horrible body ache it was so bad to the point that I couldn't really get up like out of the bed and my neck was swollen and it hurt a lot Mm. so when we like went to the doctors to see what's wrong because there was nothing like physically wrong with me when you looked at me it was just like I was feeling like I was in pain and then when they drew some blood and the, their uh, blood tests and checkups they found that my white blood cells were really high mm-hmm. um, which was concerning to them and I remember the lab where we gave the test called my mom and they told her that they're so high she needs to be hospitalized this is not normal mm-hmm. it's not like a normal infection like a cold or a flu that might happen to her Um, that's when I guess everybody started getting more and more concerned. It took like a week of, uh, diagnostic tests and, um, getting admitted into a hospital and getting more tests done for me to be diagnosed with cancer. So it was like at least a week to 10 days process. I see. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, for those who, you know, aren't familiar with, um, lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma at all. Um, it's just very helpful to, to know when you were officially diagnosed. And, you know, at 14, I mean, did you really understand the diagnosis? You had to rely on your parents to communicate these things with you, right? Yeah, um, I didn't, like I, like I mentioned before, I didn't know what cancer was. So I knew it was a disease and it would show up in my science books as like something that's scary and it happens to people, but it wasn't like, what does cancer entail? It's not something people would talk about. So I didn't know what it meant to have cancer. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure my parents didn't either to a certain extent, because if it doesn't happen to you, don't really think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did tell me that I was diagnosed with cancer. A lot of people told them not to. uh, Mm. But they thought that it, 
at least my dad and my mom both of them thought that I had the right to know and it would make the process much easier if I was aware if they were aware and we could like take this journey together together yes as a family yeah well I also appreciate your perspective on the growth aspect of this journey um you know what has been thinking back on your experience what has been your biggest self-discovery as you've reflected on your cancer journey because you're now in remission I'm in remission now um I feel like it's not something that I could pinpoint in terms of what's been my biggest discovery. I feel like I'm still processing what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because it happened to me at such a young age. It's like I processed what was happening, but I didn't exactly process what was happening. Mm-hmm. My focus when I was going through the treatment was not on cancer or the fact that I was sick. Uh, my focus was more on that I need to get better because I'm losing time and opportunity to do normal teenager things like going to school seeing my friends every day what bothered me more was that I was losing a year out of my life whereas all my peers my friends were still there continuing their life for that one year and then I had I was thrust back into it and expected to just behave like I didn't lose that one year that I wasn't all of a sudden behind because I wasn't keeping up with what was happening, what was new, like the stuff that happens in school. I hadn't lost a year of like just studying by myself and not studying on like in school, like a class environment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of self-growth and like post, like what ha- cancer gave me or like made me realize about myself, I think it's still like an ongoing journey because the way I thought of cancer in that moment when I had it and for the longest time when I was in remission was not the way I was expected to think about it and it was very different from how my parents were thinking about it too I feel like when I had cancer it impacted them more because they knew the like the real reality of the situation more Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. I did so it affected them more than it affected me perhaps fear around the long term effects but you are are very present and focused on getting back to school that was your reality every day also they were like people I would see all the time I couldn't see my friends all the time I am grateful that your prognosis um was great and um and that you've been in remission for over a decade now thank you but is that something that um obviously there are medical uh updates and it's something that you've learned to integrate as part of your life you know I assume you have regular checkups and it is true that it's not something that I can ignore I have to constantly be aware of how I'm doing health-wise um you know make 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 it to my appointments for my health checkups um get regular routine checkups done if something's wrong with me I have to contact a doctor and be on top of it like I can't just ignore it like I probably could if I didn't have that experience right um it's also something that I feel a lot of people don't think about particularly or don't talk about much is like the long-term and short-term effects of cancer post-treatment 
there are so many things that people have to constantly think about. People gain weight. People uh, have other consequences that happen due to chemo or radiation or other forms of treatment. People have to come to learn their brand new bodies. It doesn't have to be a, you know, amputation or a big procedure like, you know, mastectomy or something like that. Your body feels changed. Your body feels different after you've had cancer and you've gone through that treatment. So just coming in terms of what it feels like to be in a body that doesn't work the same way it used to, doesn't walk the same, doesn't feel the same, um, is very, it can be a long drawn process. A lot of times when I've spoken to um, people in remission post-treatment, they talk about how they are still coming to terms with their body. Like that's the most common thing they talk about when I bring up body. It's like, I'm not used to it. It feels foreign, but I'm getting there. It's a process. I see, yes. I mean, one would think that the ultimate goal is to be cancer free, mm-hmm. but you know, as you've mentioned, um, both in transitioning back to life after cancer, you know, how it might impact your relationships with your friends and also your own familiarity and process with your body, right? Because um, any type of medical procedure has an impact, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally. So what resources have been available to you to help you um, reconcile some of that struggle? Um, A part of it was definitely my family. Um, I could like, they were there for me. They, they like kept me on top of things, um, telling me that I need to be more careful or like my mom started feeding me all these good things, nutritious things, even after reminding me, I need to have almonds every day. I need to have walnuts (laughs) every day. I need to do this like typical mom stuff. Um, and then there was obviously this aspect of I had to work or think about my mental health in terms of how I'm processing things, whether it's my body, it doesn't have to be completely about cancer, but it's also like, whether it's my body, whether it's something else, like just, just the trauma or like the fear of getting it again or anything like that. And I think seeking mental health counseling really helped with that. Um, having resources for that. Um, I can't speak much about India because I never seeked counseling back at home. I know friends who do, but there were a lot of avenues here in the U.S. for me to, uh, you know, take hold of and use. I would say that I didn't particularly uh, make most out of it until pretty late. Um, it was like, you know, your busy life. I'm a student. I'm an international student here. I'm trying to make, you know, get used to the cu- culture, trying to make most of my time here, getting busy with classes, doing things. But there was one point where I realized that all of these things keep adding on. My relationship with my body, my relationship with my illness that I haven't processed or continue to process, my workload, my stress, being away in a new country, being away from what I knew. Yeah, that's a load. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot that keeps building on top of each other that I really need to sit down and unpack and think about what am I going to do with all of this? It's amazing stuff. It's like, there's so much to think about, right? There are like so many things flowing together. 
just interconnected with each other and impacting you in so many ways but it's like it's painful to process it and think about it but it's also like really worth it to do it yes it's not that you're denying yourself of the process but you have to just you know you need the tools and the support to work through it right yeah Yeah. and so that brings me to your initiative because you're working on your master's thesis could we say that this is part of your process of your own healing I think so or like I feel selfish when I say that this process is or this is like a part of (laughs) of my project like the main motivation behind my project is processing what happened to me and what happened to my parents and people I saw at that time but it's also like I think it has the capacity to help a lot of other people. Um, So I don't feel as bad. I guess I feel bad. I don't feel as bad. It's a weird situation. Yeah. I'm just aware of my positionality, I guess. (laughs) That's good. That's good to know. (laughs) So um, yeah, tell me more about what is serving as the impetus um, to include other people with lived experience in your research. What I feel... Well, part of the motivation of this project is that whenever I talk about cancer or that I'm researching about cancer, the first thing that pops into people's head is biomedical research or an actual doctor pursuing a career in oncology, like in med school or something like that. Cancer is always thought of in a very clinical sense. Mm -hmm. What's missing is a more human, like human aspect where are the people? Where are what what are they feeling like? What is their, you know, perception of what's going on with them is what was the motivation for this project. Um, I like talking to people, which helps. I want to bring their stories. It doesn't have to be like those typical stories where it's like a fabulous journey, is an inspiring journey, because I feel like survivorship in general can be kind of a burden in that sense Mm -hmm. there are various ways to survive for a person Mm -hmm. a lot of times when we think about survivorship discourse or survivor stories and narratives on popular blogs and like media and stuff like that it's this idea of like I went through a bad experience but I completely turned it around I'm kind of an inspiration. It's like, you're, you're so optimistic, you're positive, that's what you should be. But while all those things are great, and a lot of people have good days and bad days. Right. Where are the bad days? Where are the realistic bad days? That's what we need to talk about. And mm-hmm. there's also this aspect of you don't always have to out- come out right and say that you're a survivor. You can pick and choose when you want to be a survivor or how often you want to be a survivor or how loud of a survivor you would like to be. Mm. You could be a survivor and just stand in solidarity but not speak out loud. Mm. But you could be a survivor who's like really active in advocacy and really out there trying to make a change. That's a really interesting perspective, which I can appreciate. And it's not something that we often talk about because... I find that everyone's story has value. Usually there's a a bridge of connection to others who might be going through similar experiences, but their outcomes may be different or what they're grappling with could be 
different. So um, it means different things to different people, survivorship. Yeah. I think we just need to recognize that and not assume. Yeah, we need to recognize that. Also, it's this idea of, especially for like South Asian, Asian communities Mm. that are so culturally, linguistically diverse, survivorship is not the same as it looks for, I guess, mainstream American born people. (laughs) It's like, Um. so if we're talking just in terms of language, there is, there is words for cancer in Hindi and other Indian languages, but there is no word that equally translates to survivor. So there is, is no label for people to use for really? in their native language. So it becomes really hard for somebody who is not a native English speaker or just very comfortable speaking English mm-hmm. to validate their own experience as a survivor if they don't have a word for it, let alone a language to express what they're feeling like or what they're doing Mm -hmm. which can make their survivorship experience very difficult but then there's also this idea of cancer being seen as a taboo in India particularly there is uh, a lot of conversation that's happening and a push from the biomedical side as well as um, from advocates and Mm -hmm people in popular media, actors, models, and all these, you know, social workers who are trying to bring out more conversation and get rid of cancer, um, of its shame and guilt that's usually Mm -hmm. associated with it. Mm -hmm. But people are still not talking about it. They're not willing to talk about it. They don't like being associated with it. Um, So if you don't what want to be associated with it how do you even you're not going to tell anybody about it you're not going to talk about it and while it's I want to give them the benefit benefit of the doubt that it's okay to not talk about it it's take your time process it on your own it can also be very burdensome to not talk about you don't have anyone to talk to about your pain Mm -hmm. or even tell them that I really need help. How are you supposed to ask for help if you are not allowed to talk about it? How are you supposed to make use of your resources, access all the resources that are available to you if you don't want to talk about it or be associated with it, which creates this problem, not just in survivorship, but also during treatment for people. Right. So that's um, that's the first step. And in your research, I hope that people will be open to sharing with you um, as much as I um, also encourage people to share their stories and their experiences here. So I appreciate your honesty in, in sharing what survivorship means to you and how it can vary from person to person. So ultimately with your research, what is, what is the outcome? I still want to continue, um, I guess, advocating in my own way. Mm-hmm. My fir- first and foremost thing that I want to do is get rid of this whole death and clinical association mm-hmm. with cancer. That's the first thing I want to do. Uh, I want to be able, through people's stories, I want to be able to tell that cancer doesn't just have to be medicalized and it doesn't just have to be about death. 
there's so much room for creativity in there there is humor there is hope there is resilience there is food for example (laughs) um tell me more about that I started this not a mini project but I just started looking around blogs in India um to like look at discourse around cancer mm-hmm. and just see what are people talking about I'm sure there should be something and I noticed that a lot of Indian blogs publish an insane amount of recipes huh. and it's it's just all recipes which feels odd like there there is like this clinical aspect where it's like they're talking about different types of treatments and compare them and then prevention and like how to prevent it and stuff like that and then there's just food which seems so misplaced and it's just like it's not just recipes it's like what type of food is better for you what type of food is not better for you what qualities does this food have how you should prepare that food right and it dawned on me when I thought more about it was how food played such a big role in my treatment Uh, the first thing that people did was talk to my mom about what she should be feeding me (laughs) or tell her what she should be feeding me or what would help me regain my strength Mm -hmm. to be able to like go through this journey and even afterwards to be able to heal myself food plays such a huge role in Indian culture um, and it does in a lot of cultures in general food is like the center of social circle it's the central center of care it's the center of healing in a lot of cultures. Mm-hmm. So food has so many ideas associated with it. And your relationship with food is so important that we don't pay attention to it a lot of times. The one of the first things that people tell you when you're starting your cancer treatment is what you should eat or how you should eat it, what you should be putting in your body. And your relationship with food because of the treatment cuz obviously you feel nauseous, you feel bloated, you don't you lose your appetite it changes a lot when you talk to people they'll tell you there are certain foods that remind them of their cancer treatment because they ate it so much because that was the only soothing thing that they could think of Mm -hmm. and they're not able to have it again like prior to the treatment and now they can't because it's too maybe spicy for them or Mm -hmm. too much for their stomach to take so it's so interesting to think about food and its relationship with cancer Mm -hmm. it's just like i feel like People just don't realize it. And who doesn't like talking about food? I like talking about food. Right. What was your most memorable food item that helped you? So I craved a lot of Indo-Chinese food, which is probably not the healthiest thing to eat. (laughs) But my oncologist was very nice. And he also knew I was like, as a teenager, obviously I'm going to have cravings. So Mm -hmm. he was like, you can have this like once a week. And I was like, yes. (laughs) I, I will... I will enjoy that one day (laughs) thoroughly so my parents would get it for me every single time whether it was like they would time it in such a way that like they knew that I was craving it so it was like after I got discharged right after chemo so we'll go and get food or they'll invite my cousins over and then we'll get food so it was like it was like nice because I could be surrounded by people and also help me like just I guess not think about what was going on yes it helped me feel normal again like okay we're just we're just getting in Chinese food it's it's cool it's like a like a laid-back evening yes isn't that a beautiful thing I mean the cultural aspect of food and community because it really helps it helps in your healing your emotional and mental state 
That's it really does. And we don't give it enough credit. I wish food was given more credit. (laughs) All right. We'll be food advocates from here on out. (laughs) Before we wrap up, um, I did want to ask you about how you define resilience at this stage in your life. That's an interesting question. How would I define resilience? Um, I feel like there is resilience. A lot of people associate resilience with just focusing on the good, right? Mm -hmm. It's like just being positive all the time and being like strong and powerful. In that sense, that's resilience. Like your willpower is resilience. I think for me, resilience would be acknowledging that there's something wrong. It's, mm-hmm. it's coming to terms with something's wrong and then using your resources or trying your best to overcome that, whatever is going on in your life. So let's say if after my treatment, I realized that I didn't process it and perhaps going and seeking counseling was something that I felt was I was doing for myself. Like I'm not just shoving it under the carpet or I'm not just forgetting about it or or moving on or forcing myself to move on Mm -hmm. I it's me acknowledging that I haven't processed this and it's a lot I need to do something about it right and I think resilience for me at this point or how I see it is how creative people can get to overcoming Mm -hmm. after acknowledging what's wrong with them Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you did um, reach out for support. Um, That says a lot about you and your awareness of your own needs. Some of the hardest times end up bringing the best things about life out, not only within you, but, you know, in other people as well. But I hear you, you want to hear about all of it, because, you know, healing is never, as they say, a linear course (laughs) and healing never ends you're always healing absolutely well it's been such a pleasure and um i always like to end with a few rapid fire questions sure i'd be happy to would you rather find your dream job or win the lottery dream job okay um the best piece of advice you've ever received Someone once told me that even if you crumple up a $100 bill, it doesn't reduce its value. So no matter what I go through, it's not going to reduce my value or what I bring to the table. Mm. Okay. Uh, As we're all preparing for a heat wave here, what's your favorite thing to do in the summertime? Probably stay inside (laughs) in the air conditioning. (laughs) I am not a summer person at all. All right. So what novel or anime character could you see yourself as? Oh, my God. Oh, that's so hard because there are so many. <laughs> um, what stands out? What, what stands out? I really like, um, I've, I mean, I really like uh, Fairy Tale. This, it was one of the first animes that I watched. And uh, Urza. <laughs> It's like the female character who's like super strong and like is like really badass. And I was like, 
I want to be her. Can I just be her? She's so perfect. And like, she has red hair and everything. I could never pull off red hair. Let's be honest. But I was like, I just want to get red hair because she has red hair. Um, and what makes you hopeful? Um, what makes me hopeful? Sun comes out every day. Hey, hey simple things in life. I, and I managed to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Those two things make me hopeful every day. Grateful for that. So thank you so much, Nayanika, for gracing us with your presence today. I hope you've had fun. I did. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was so exciting. So grateful for your perspectives and willingness to share your own health journey, um, as well as raising the voices of others so you can, can all help one another to heal and thrive. So I hope you'll come back to share some of the results of your research. And okay. uh, and we will share Nayanika's social media links and contact information for people who may be interested in learning more about her work. And, um, and safe travels to India, because I know you're planning to visit family. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you like what you've heard in this episode, be sure to visit our podcast page on the AsianWomenForHealth.org website, where you can tune into this and any of our earlier podcast episodes on your preferred platform, Google and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. We also encourage you to check out Asian Women for Health's schedule of monthly socials, health webinars, and lunch and learn virtual programs. Please make the most of these learning opportunities and share them widely. And a reminder that the Asian American Mental Health Forum will be a virtual event on Saturday, July 30th, featuring speakers, panelists, and interactive workshops on building resilience, healing trauma across generations. Until next time, keep shining because the world needs you.